Well, good morning. We are in John 13, and I think about 90% of you are new to this class, uh, which I guess keeps me on the toes. So how do I summarize and uh, also cover so that those who have been with me through this time don't feel like, wow, he's just listening to a rerun. Let's begin with prayer. Our Lord and our God, please make this time valuable by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for each one here and for your blessing in our lives. We give you thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the lower library of the Cathedral Church of the Advent, and we're in the upper room with Jesus. Uh, kind of a paradoxical setting. Just think of all the history that's gone on from the upper room to where we are today. And that history gives us a certain perspective on listening to Jesus. I think it's always important to go kind of back to the basics. How did it get started? What was it that Jesus actually said on that night that was so crucial? Uh, On the left column, you'll see the, the text of John 13. And then in the right column, we've got sort of commentary. And let me just sort of briefly go through that. What we've said is that there are deep meaning indicators that John has embedded in John 13. This is not just about a very significant man doing humble service in order to inspire his followers to be altruistic and kind to others. What is pictured here is an object lesson of the atonement. The Passover, I list there seven aspects. The Passover, the hour, the redemptive love, the work of the devil, Jesus' self-identity, Jesus' self-emptying, and his final word, finished, which is the word that John will use to quote Jesus from the cross. It is finished as his final word. So this is kind of an inclusio. begins here on Monday, Thursday, and it will end on the cross this... um, entire passion narrative that then goes on of course to end on Easter with the resurrection and John 13 and Philippians 2 are in harmony as you see there under five different comparative parallel points he lays aside his outer clothes he lays aside his divine nature he takes a towel he takes the form of a slave there's a parallel that's running here that as I say is a deep meaning indicator Two object lessons are in play, the towel in the basin and the bread in the cup. And in a way, both of those are very defining for the meaning and character of the Christian life. The towel in the basin and the bread in the cup. There's a kind of logos logic that's going on here um, in the dialogue in verse 6 on the left column. You see the text, the second paragraph. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. This is a picture of the cleansing, not just of feet, of course, not uh, complying with Near Eastern hospitality before a meal, but the deeper meaning, the cleansing of the soul, the cleansing of a life to make one acceptable uh, before God. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
We spoke last time of how you get the confession right for Peter, and yet you can get the commitment wrong. And once again, Peter is saying never to his Lord, just like he said in Matthew 16, when he made that wonderful, powerful confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And in the next moment, after Jesus begins explaining how he has to go to the cross and die, Peter is saying, never, Lord. And here we have a second kind of never. You're never going to wash my feet. And, you know, there's a process that most of us engage in that takes time for understanding what this commitment to Jesus Christ is really all about. What is the cost? And what is the relationship between the confession being right and the commitment being understood and right? Verse 12, we have this uh, kind of deliberate discipleship message from Jesus. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? And the I, the first person singular, is very important through here. The reiteration of I, 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 I. The authority of Christ now assumed after washing the disciples' feet. And here, humility and authority coming right next together. And I think that in the mature Christian's life, this is the usual case. A real sense of humility, but also a real sense of authority. An authority that for us is not invested in ourselves, per se, but it's invested in who God in Christ is in us. Do you understand what I've done for you is the question he asked them. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, and your teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There is a sense in which we work out this wonderful salvation with fear and trembling. You know, one of the messages that is just prevailing and pervasive at the Advent is the gospel of grace. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God has a gracious, merciful embrace. Everyone's called. What is also embedded in that invitation of grace is that nobody's life stays the same. Everybody's life gets transformed and changed. Come as you are, but you won't remain as you were. And the power of God's grace to shape a life. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Now let's focus more on verse 18 when Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Bread's going to be mentioned four or five times more now in this passage. And again, our poet, pastor, apostle, John, is uh, very intentional in the language that he's using. And here is a quote in verse 18 
The quote is from Psalm 41. And I think that it's really important to, you know, the questions that come to my mind is, uh, why is Jesus so generous and protective of Judas? You know, he doesn't expose him. He lets Judas know that he knows. And that is a... Uh, and he, he says he does this now so that they would really believe that he wasn't blindsided, that he knew what was coming. Verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. So it's for the sake of the disciples, he's informing, but he's not exposing Judas to the disciples. I think this is a, an interesting picture of what it means to love our enemy. Um, Jesus is being honest with Judas, but he's able to live in the tension which has gone on now for a long time, knowing that Judas is going to betray him. Now, you know how hard that is to function in the presence of one's enemy. And Jesus is having to function at a very high level of caring for and informing the disciples of the things to come. Meanwhile, always the presence of that person who he knows inside hates him. Now, it, it, the motive behind Judas's betrayal is not definitively set forth in Scripture. Is it? We don't really know why. We can uh, we can make some kind of uh, speculate. We can speculate about it in the gospel reading for the scriptures today from John 12. You remember Judas's reaction when Mary uh, pours out the uh, pours out the perfume that's worth a lot, and Judas is angry, and he says this money should have been spent for the poor. And then you have John's rider on there, which would have come, of course, much later. Uh, Judas was angry, and I'll tell you why. Because he was a thief. He wasn't caring about the poor. That's John's assessment that's written back into the text. John didn't understand that at that moment, why Judas was angry. But the Bible doesn't necessarily care about this motive. It does care about what Judas does and Judas's anger at Jesus. Now, how does Jesus process this? This is going on, and it's been going on. How does Jesus cope with this Judas factor in the upper room, in this last night with his disciples? And I'll tell you, in a few moments, Judas is going to get up and he's going to leave. And I think there's some relief on Jesus' part when he's finally out the door. Um, he probably felt like slamming the door, but he didn't because he's still in character. He's still faking it to make it with the disciples. But I'm impressed by the one-liner. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 41. Now, if you have Bibles, um, 
turn with me. I will know that I'm really successful at the Advent. (laughs) And I'm I'm willing to play this out over time. But I will know this will be an objective, evaluative uh, assessment. Psalm 41. Now just listen. Listen carefully. You're good listeners. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I have said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander and he does he goes out and he spreads it around all my enemies whisper against me they imagine the worst for me saying a vile disease has afflicted him he will never get up from the place where he lies even my close friend here it is this is the line even my close friend someone i trusted one who shared my bread has turned against me but may you have mercy on me, Lord, and raise me up. So Jesus is being helped to process the dynamic in this upper room with Judas by the Psalms. He's praying the Psalms. And he's finding insight emotionally how to cope with the Judas factor by praying the Psalms. If there's anything that could be remembered this morning from our time together, it would be to underscore the value of the Psalms for processing the difficulties and the challenges of our life. One of the most, uh, for me, that I've uh, that I've heard about poignant ways of dealing with the Psalms was in uh, a book by John Feinberg, who teaches at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, and John Feinberg wrote a book, Deceived by God. And it's a book that chronicles his wife uh, Patricia's um, demise through Huntington's disease. John had, in his MDiv, written a thesis on the book of Job, very uh, attracted by the compelling concern of of suffering and how to cope with that in the Christian life and uh, how to understand it. And then he wrote um, his uh, Master of Theological Thesis on theodicy, uh, explaining God in a world of suffering. And then he did his doctorate on the subject too. So he's written three theses on suffering and then Patricia was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And he said, I was absolutely devastated. It was like I had never understood anything in the Bible. He said, my life completely unraveled. He said, I had a, not only was I uh, 
mourning over what was happening to my wife, but he said, I was uh, c complete zero in terms of what I could think of theologically. He said it was like all of that work had no bearing whatsoever in coping with this present reality. All of that work, years of work. Now what is to me very brave and courageous about his book, Deceived by God, is that he describes though how his wife responded. And it would be kind of your typical, uh, boy I'm, I'm really drawing a stereotype here, but uh, John had spent all his time in school and all his time working on advanced theological degrees. Patricia hadn't at all. Her time had been spent as a mother, uh, not necessarily a person, a kind of couple relationship where they would talk together intellectually and theologically. Uh, and yet Patricia had for years prayed the Psalms. And she walked out of that doctor's office claiming the line from Thessalonians, claiming the line from Romans, that all things work together for good to those who love God. She processed this for herself through the Psalms. And she started with the beginning of the Psalms and, and read through the Psalms, gathering up all those Psalms that spoke of the Lord is our refuge, the Lord is our strength, the Lord is our... Um, psalm 46 was a key Psalm for her. And she prayed the Psalms. And John is beholding his wife, who hasn't spent any time in an academic theological setting at all, actually understanding and knowing God in the midst of this where he felt like he was just in a black hole. Let me just read a little bit of what Patricia said. No, I'm quoting her in my book. Um, Feinberg admits, I couldn't figure it out. I had all these intellectual answers, but none of them made any difference in how I felt on the personal level. As a professor of theology, surely I could understand what God was doing in this situation. On the contrary, I began wondering if, in fact, it really understood anything at all about God. The emotional and psychological pain was unrelenting, and even devastating physical pain resulted from the stress. I was experiencing a religious crisis, and none of this information I had stored away seemed to matter in the least. Patricia describes her initial reaction to the bad news this way. I was extremely shocked when the disease was diagnosed. I knew that when physical problems come, one should thank God for his presence and strength in the midst of those problems, rather than becoming bitter. And I knew that I should do that, whether I felt like it or not, so that what I did, that, so that's what I did on the way home in the car. I also knew 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. No matter what the circumstances, God is still there, and he's in control of all that happens. He is faithful to his word. That is reason for thanksgiving, and I continue to thank him each day. And one of the first things that Patricia did was to read through the Psalms, write down every reference having to do with God's strength in time of trouble. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Through prayer, Patricia was able to hear the word of God in her pain 
And God made that verse true in her life. I have confidence in his presence, even in the midst of this disease. A powerful story to me of of processing our struggles and our challenges by praying the Psalms. And when we do that, we're in the tradition of Jesus. This is what he's doing in the upper room. A one-liner, he who shared my bread has turned against me, points us in the direction of what was informing his mind. And in the midst of that, he's loving his enemy. Any comment that you want to make? Doug, this is extremely powerful that you're bringing out. I mean, this is new levels I've never really contemplated. Um, just the setting. Um, Judas has been with Christ for, for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know each other very, very, very well. All the intricacies of life and habits and personalities and temperaments. And, I mean, and here is one of his. 12 selling out. Um, but Christ has known Judas. I mean, I'm in construction, so I know people well, and you know people's habits and tendencies and weaknesses and strengths. And I mean, Jesus didn't wake up one day and realize that Judas was slipping. You know, I'm sure this had been from day one. He, he knew certain character traits about him. Uh, from a non believer standpoint, if I was sharing this story with someone uh, they may say uh, well if Jesus knew why didn't he tackle Judas or time lock him in the closet or you know save him from carrying this out and of course as believers you know this was God's will for God's plan to carry out you, know, you, you can't have a uh, have the resurrection without the crucifixion and uh, anyway but it is a powerful story this may even be one reason why Jesus doesn't name Judas to the disciples. Because what would Peter have done? Peter was always up for the ego challenge. <laughs> Not so much for the personal challenge, but for the ego challenge, yes indeed. So something would have happened to Judas. So my question is, Jesus, in loving his enemy, actually safeguards his enemy in this situation. But because of the way he does it, he also causes all the disciples to question themselves. See how it... Re- um, let's see if I can find it. Verse 20, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. If you turn the page to verse 21, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Now, you remember from Luke 22 um, and Luke's description of the upper room, what what the disciples are debating? This one's probably even more uh, remembered than this particular situation. Remember, they're debating who's the greatest. And that's part of the conversation. And so now this is another emotional current that comes into play. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is John talking. And this is how John identifies himself. 
this isn't a point of uh, pride. This is a point. This is not um, an, uh, an indirect way of John saying I'm superior to the other disciples. No, uh, this is how I want all my children to understand that I love them best, uh, and we will tease and joke about that. Uh, and this is just John's way of identifying himself. One of the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, of course he loved them all, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, of course it's Peter, uh, and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread. And when he had, when I have dipped it in the dish and then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had, cha had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival, to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, all of that ties back to Psalm 41. It's John's way of draw underscoring the psalm over and over and over again. Uh, but why... Why lead the disciples through this period of consternation? Who is it? And sort of self not self-incrimination, but questioning. So now I'm questioning, I'm questioning, is it Ron? Is it Jim? Uh, is it Emily? You know, and that's uh, the natural kind of human depraved response. It's, it's one of you. Uh, that's going to do this awful thing. Why would Jesus do that? Well, I think it's kind of humorous in a way because... I, I don't know if there's a lot of humor going on right well, now. <laughs> the humorous part is the disciples are... I mean, I, I can relate to them because you get a group of people together and they're all involved with their stuff. And the disciples talk about all different subjects and stuff. And this is just another thing put into a conversation. And they're really, the way I read it, they're not really paying attention like you and I are studying it. Okay. Ron, you're about to say something. I was just going to say, in retrospect, looking back on it, um, does that cause them to more question how is that really different than Jesus? <clears throat> And I, I, next week, I really want us to compare Peter and Judas and the tension between what I think is kind of Judas's treachery and Peter's kind of timidity. He's, he's a coward in the particular why he comes to deny Christ. So that's part of the tension, and I would agree with you looking back. Emily? It sure seems like on one level they all should, from our standpoint, reading it, they all should pick out, well, it's Judas. We've just gotten that physical sign from Jesus. But then the evaluation of how they're thinking indicates the confusion and the ambiguity, and they don't really put two and two together. And might that also indicate 
how Judas has done such a great job mm. acting devoted mm. and committed. Um, you wouldn't, if it were, you know, if I were sitting there, mm-hmm. or if Gil was sitting there, and even though you had the verbal exchange, I don't think that you'd be thinking that we're the betrayer if we're kind of next up in the in the exchange here. Uh, I'm curious as to why Jesus does it so symbolically. Like, why wouldn't he say, "I'm going to tell you who it is, and his name is Judas"? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a much, it's, it's very sort of symbolic. I'm going to tell you who it is. And I'm going to tell you who it is by doing this action of giving him the bread, as opposed to just maintaining his cover. Yeah. Still, yeah. Uh, Jane. Is it an opportunity, a last opportunity for repentance? Jesus never closes the door on Judas. He will end up closing the door himself, but Jesus will not do that. And isn't that part of loving our enemy? We don't write the last chapter; they have to. And it takes mercy, it takes patience, it takes perseverance, it takes courage. But, like, you never say to a child, you're out. You just never do that. You can't do that. You can never say, I don't want to see you again. The Jesus-Judas model is very instructive here on a, a persistence, a patience, a love, and yet, an honesty. I mean, he lets Judas know that he is his betrayer. And he feeds him. That's what it's about. And he feeds him. And he feeds him. Blood. Yes. And this is one of the reasons you can, uh, I, I guess you can't get too hung up on who partakes of Holy Eucharist. Because uh, Jesus didn't fence the table real, real well at this point. Uh, and uh, all, just always extending... His love, always extending His grace, and yet being honest. Emily? Well, it seems, don't you think that Jesus' real, I mean, obviously Judas is culpable for his actions, but the real enemy here is Satan. I would put, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. we do this with the Nicene Creed. We say, all God, all man, all Judas, all Satan. I would put, the, the evil dynamic here is inexplicable apart from the great evil one. Nevertheless, Judas is, he has had everything. He has listened, he's walked, he's prayed, he's, you know, he's seen the miracles, he's just been, and it's so scary. It's so scary for me to be that close to Jesus for that long, and yet, what, for, for money? 30 pieces of silver for frustration over the fact that Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah he was hoping he was going to be politically, um, that he wasn't taking over, but instead was actually getting on his knees and washing the disciples' feet. How stupid could that be? Um, But it was John 12 and the uh, extravagant worship of Mary that really drove him to the point of going and seeking out, it's described in Matthew, seeking out how much will you pay me uh, to betray the Lord. I have a friend who, uh, Virginia and I, have a couple friend who live in the Northwest, um, three kids, 
married for 20 years, um, a really good marriage. In fact, uh, at one in one church setting that I was in, I employed him uh, to be the principal of a Christian school. Um, and then after 20 years of marriage, he became infatuated with a high school girlfriend and uh, walked out of the marriage. Um, outwardly a very committed Christian, very spiritual, talking a lot of prayer and, and so forth. And I'll always remember Jenny, Jenny, his wife's comment, and she's done very well. About It's been about five years now, very stable, wonderful mother, um, really fine Christian, uh, very mature, easy to talk to now about this, even though it was just so devastatingly painful. But she, this comment I don't think I'll ever forget, Jenny said, Jesus, because of the betrayal, knows what I have gone through and took great comfort in the empathy of Jesus, that Jesus has experienced what I experienced in terms of the rejection of my husband. Um, Tempted in all points like we, yet without sin. David, you were going to make a comment before. Uh, Yeah, verse 27 Allowing that to happen, it's sort of ironical that he's giving him the bread, and when we take the bread, likening it to communion, you know what it represents, the body of Christ, and in this case, Jesus is giving uh, Judas the bread, and Satan is agreeing. Kind of runs a shiver up your spine. <laughs> the intensity of evil right there at the table. Um, verse 31 and with this we'll we'll close when he was gone when he was gone Jesus said now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once it's interesting that the, the redemptive and encouraging thought that occurs to Jesus in that moment that Judas walks out the door to betray him was, I am in the center of the Father's will. Remarkable. You know, you talk about going positive versus going negative in where your mind is at in the crux of a really difficult time. Now, the Son of Man can be glorified with the glory that the Father intended to give him. Things are set in motion for an outcome that God in his redemptive sovereignty is in control of. So, you know, what we take away from this, sisters and brothers, is we can melt down in the face of um, devastating news. And we can grow bitter and we can uh, grow hostile Uh, We can feel that the world is to blame and God is to blame and we're deceived by God. We can do all of that. Or we can really understand God's sovereign care, 
God's sovereign redemptive purposes. We can turn to him in the Psalms, and there's plenty of Psalms that will give voice to your extreme anger against God. It's there. Those are the Psalms we should be praying when we really are angry with God. And God is so gloving, so big, so majestic that he can take that. And he is the one, I'm using the male, God is the one that uh, is able, and he is the subject through which we need to recognize in those difficult times. Virginia, would you add anything into this? Except I won't say get out of here this afternoon. <laughs> 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 Learning to pray. Well, sometimes we get in the car and something's occurred to you to say, and yeah. unless I draw you out, unless uh, <laughs> <laughs> you draw it out. Uh, I'll tell you, John and Patricia Feinberg had, in, from his description, have a very different relationship than Virginia and I have. Um, in terms of thinking theology, talking theology, talking life, integration of, of word. Um, so. I guess my only thought is. See? see? Yeah, there is a thought there. Just start early. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our trust in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have a good week.